HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more. And if it's for you, sign up. Welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. It's January 19th, 2021, and I can't believe it's 2021. We're recording remotely still. Uh, I'm up in New England, and we've got some special guests from British Columbia in Canada. And one thing that we've noticed is that throughout the pandemic, we still have this amazing community of of craft beer people. And this show in particular, we're going to dive more into the backstory of of Canadian craft beer, and and, in particular uh, with two really important uh, personalities from that region and BC. So let's go around and introduce ourselves. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host on Beer Sessions Radio. Brad? Brad McQuay. I started um, oh back in 1984 as a uh, uh, I, my title was brewmaster trainee. I got lucky and managed to land uh, land a job working for a crazy Englishman named John Mitchell, who bucked uh, all the laws against doing a small brewery or doing a brew pub, and uh, managed to get it put through. And so he was one of the pioneers out here in the West Coast. Uh, and he started the first brewery uh, called the Troller, uh, actually it was the Troller Pub in the Horseshoe Bay Brewery, because at that time the federal laws prevented a brewery from being on the premise of the pub. So they had to, they had to have a roadway separate, separate the two. And uh, so John went on and did this, and he, he spent about two years doing this, and then he walked away from it, uh, eventually he sold out. And the reason being was he wanted to do an in-house brew pub. He, he just did not like the idea of having this roadway separate the two. Uh, and part of it was because in the early days in the UK, um, the, the major breweries there, they owned their own pubs and they did bulk beer delivery. They would actually deliver beer in tanks rather than kegs and then serve out of those tanks to the bar. So it saved you know, a ton of money in, in kegging costs and that sort of thing. And so they do this bulk beer delivery. And I think that's what in the back of John's mind was doing the same thing. Is, you know, in this brew pub, you could have a tank and you didn't have to keg your beer, so there's less handling and therefore fresher beer, let's say. 
and the laws just didn't allow it. So he pursued, and he was very persistent, and actually had the federal laws changed to allow him to do that. And so he was the um, first one to open a in-house brew pub, at least the first one that I'm aware of. Uh, and that was in 1984, and that was uh, spring of 1984, actually, in Victoria, where Joe is. Uh, and you would know Spinnaker's, right, Joe? That's right, yep. Spinnaker's is uh, a great spot to this day here in Victoria, B.C. It's, it's still singing along after all these years. It's amazing. And great, Brad, and, hold on. So, Joe, Joe, introduce yourself for the audience just sure. briefly. Sure. My name is Joe Weeb. I call myself the Thirsty Writer. I wrote a book a few years back called Craft Beer Revolution, The Insider's Guide to BC Breweries. And uh, yeah, I'm based in Victoria, BC, and uh, happy to be here today. Great. And Rob, we have another guest, Rob. Yes, good afternoon. It's Rob Liedel here, and uh, I make my home in Vernon, British Columbia. That's about six hours from where we're doing the recording right now. And uh, find yourselves here in, in Abbotsford. Uh, I'm here with Brad. And... Uh, yeah, my connection to the uh, the scene is, uh, I guess I started off in brewing, but uh, somehow got fell into the malting industry, and that's where I seem to be continuing to um, uh, endeavor. That's great. So we're going to bounce around a little bit, but but Brad's taking us back to the '80s, which is a great place to start. I think that uh, most of us don't know the, really the history of of Canada craft beer, and and especially not about BC. Um, so, Brad, you, were, you started working in, in this brew pub, and uh, just tell us how, how you kind of went from that and uh, to having a manufacturing business. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not necessarily a direct line. I, actually, I'll, I'll go back a little bit uh, further, Jimmy, because, you know, you have to ask the question, okay, why, how did I get a job in a brew pub? You know, I mean, it's, it's not a, uh, you know, a common job. Matter of fact, it would be a very unique job back then. And the, my history was I started brewing beer, home brewing beer, when I was about 14 or so. Um, uh, it's probably not socially uh, correct to even talk about stuff like that. But back then, it was, times were different. And uh, I had a paper route, and I saved up my money, and I used to make beer. I never actually drank it. I think I was trying to make beer that I could drink. And anyway, I never did like beer that much. And, uh, and I think it was because the beer was actually terrible or putrid, to be more <laughs> honest. And... Uh, I remember making a batch one time, and, and uh, my parents had uh, gone away on a holiday, and my grandmother was left to look after us. And I have two older sisters, and so my grandmother actually didn't live in the house, but she did show up every day. And my parents had an ensuite to their bedroom, and so what I did is I had my five-gallon fermenter. It was just a open-top plastic pail that I put a plastic sheet over, and and I had it fermenting in her tub. Anyway, she found this and she dumped it out. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you have to understand, they, they, they were very religious. I mean, my, my grandfather was a, a pastor of a church and that sort of thing. And so I was kind of doing the devil's business in their eyes. But anyway, I, I actually made beer uh, to the point where it was somewhat drinkable. And uh, I never liked it that much, but I was an entrepreneur. So I, I actually packaged it in uh, champagne bottles or you know sparkling wine type bottles. And I would sell it to the kids in grade 10 for 50 cents a bottle. So I was uh, entrepreneurial at a very young age. Uh, but that's where my interest in beer and, and you say, brewing science or fermentation science started. And uh, I eventually ended up going to university, uh, but mostly studying um, uh, pre-med pre -med stuff because I worked as a paramedic for a while, and that got me interested. But it turns out that the science 
that I was um, learning, the biochemistry microbiology is, you know, right up brewing alley. You know, I mean, it was fantastic having that kind of education. So when I got into brewing, it, everything started to make sense to me. As a matter of fact, it was way more interesting than, than the pre-med stuff. So uh, that is how I actually got the job is when I sent a resume in, I talked about home brewing, which didn't seem to interest them, but my understanding of the necessity of having sanitary conditions and, you know, the growth of bacteria and, and uh, even uh, my understanding of yeast metabolism and things like that was of interest. And so that's actually how I got my foot in the door. So that was kind of the backstory on up to the point where I did get this job. Brad, I'm, I'm just, since we're uh, talking about like technology and manufacturing a little bit, what, what systems were in use then? You know, what, what kind of measuring get, equipment? I was just going to get to that, Jimmy. On, <laughs> on this particular system was uh, because, because there wasn't really anybody at the time uh, putting together turnkey packages, you know, brew, you know, brewing system packages. It was bought uh, out of the UK, and it was a company called SPR. Uh, SPR stood for, if I'm, memory uh, serves me right, was uh, Stainless Pipe and Repair. They were a company that serviced breweries in the UK, and they got on this um, thing about making these packaged breweries. And, and John had met with them in Ramsbottom in Lancashire and uh, uh, bought this kit, you might say, and have it, had it uh, shipped to Canada and had local people install it. And he had a couple of friends that were fairly knowledgeable, and, uh, and they did the startup on it, and that sort of thing. I, I didn't start at Spinnaker's on opening day. I started a... Uh, three or four months after, I think it was, uh, they had started. So I wasn't there for the, the opening. But that's where that system came from. I think uh, shortly after I got involved in this, you know, I became aware of others that were in the industry. And JV Northwest out of uh, Portland, Oregon, um, came onto the scene uh, late in the 80s there. I started recognizing them. And, and we used to see a lot of their stuff, uh, you know, into California and things like that in those early days. Yeah, that's great, man. I bet you use a lot of different tools. Yeah, yeah, you do. But, you know, I ended up, uh, I stayed at Spinnaker's for uh, six years, developed a lot of the early recipes and that sort of thing. And, and because it was an English system, it was English style, too, the brewing. It was very uh, simple infusion, mash done, uh, electric-fired uh, brew kettle. And we used whole hops. We didn't get into uh, pelletized hops. We used whole hops. And, and even raw materials back in those days were a challenge because there was no internet and there was no catalog. There was no craft brewers conference. There was, um, you were left to really your, your own devices to figure out where to find stuff. And uh, so your networking comprised of phoning somebody else that, you know, might've been a thousand miles away who had a brewery and you'd ask him and usually they didn't know either. So um, you, you eventually did find stuff, but it was not quick and easy. It was through networking and travel and, and that sort of thing. But so earlier you said that, um, for example, to get Canadian malt, you would have had to buy a railroad car size. That, that's what they were familiar with. I mean, you could get a bag malt, but they didn't do, they didn't necessarily have it on the dock waiting. Like they would do a bag run every now and then. And, uh, if you're, uh, lucky at the time, then you could get it. But they charged so much for it, um, and it was just, it, you know, they were somewhat rude because it was just a real bother for them for such a small order. And so that's, um, you know, one of the reasons why we, we end up uh, going overseas is because they were 
I don't know, they, they seemed just grateful to get the business, even though we were tiny. And they, I think they thought it was kind of fun. So, but we could get a lot more specialty malts that way too. We, in Canada, the specialty malts were very limited. I think we were getting Karistan malt out of, uh, oh, somewhere in Southern Ontario there. Um, I don't know if Rob, if you remember the plant that that was made at. Oh, was Rob been, Rob, you got to introduce yourself. Oh, yeah. you already did. Well, let, let, let Rob come on now. Let's, let's, let's get his take. We know he went to a, a brewing science school. Let's hear a little bit about his introduction to the industry and it's early work he's with gotta, malt. He's got to tell us about his dad, though, Jimmy. He's got to tell us about his dad. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, Jimmy. Um, yeah, I got my, my I grew up in uh, southern Ontario, just north of Toronto. Uh, I, uh, first generation uh, Canadian from an Austrian immigrant family. And uh, sure enough, very uh, strong-willed uh, father. And he went on, had a... Um, a bakery, uh, one of those typical uh, sm small town bakeries that you would have known back in the day. And uh, that's where I grew up. And But I realized at a certain point that wasn't for me. So I moved on um, with that, all that knowledge, uh, of that knowledge, and uh, went to went to University of Guelph. Uh, got introduced to um, I took food science. I didn't want to throw away everything I'd learned. Then I um, ended up uh, uh, taking the co what we call the co-op program. So you're not just studying, you're actually being sent out uh, to see what it's like in the real world. And my second job was uh, with Molson. And uh, they were at that time in Barry, a place called Barrie, Ontario, but now we're north of Toronto. And... Uh, I, within a week or two, I realized, my God, this is very, very interesting and kind of in keeping with what Brad um, talked about, you know, it's a place where there's a lot of science, engineering, and all these things going on, lots of people. You realize that there's, uh, there's something to this brewing industry. So I, I stayed on the, uh, on the brewing track, finished up my, my education um, in Ontario, and then I, I've always dreamed of going to Europe and, and hanging out there and actually uh, uh, going to school there. So I, well, I guess it, it finally culminated. Uh, I put my application in for uh, Weinstefan in just outside of Munich, Germany. Uh, at that time, I was the very first um, Canadian to, to go there and to graduate. Uh, and what language was that uh, course in yeah, Brad, that was all done in German. And that was probably for me one of the, the biggest challenges. It wasn't just going there and, um, you know, doing it all in English. So that turned out to be one of the biggest challenges. And uh, anybody knows anything about the German language, uh, there's lots of dialects. And I just so happened to be uh, brought up in a, a house where the dialect was spoken. And I never really paid a whole lot of attention to the written language. So that became a, a very a big challenge. I understood everybody uh, because it was it's in uh, Bavaria and it's that part of the world where let's say proper Germans have even trouble understanding them. But <laughs> that aside, um, I, I was able to uh, get through it, and uh, I graduated. And it just uh, from there the doors started to open. I came. I knew at that point in time I'd want to come back to North America. I, I realized it wasn't, I've always thought a lot of Europe, 
but I realized, hey, there's some, there's going to be some nice challenges in North America. And this was 1991. I came back to uh, came back to Canada um, after graduating, hung out at home, and uh, I guess within two weeks I got pretty antsy. And uh, uh, my my grandfather had also uh, immigrated to North America post post World War II. And he, he made his home in Southern California. So I said, oh, heck, I'm going to go down to Southern California. So I drove, uh, hopped in a car and then drove down on my own. And uh, this is where Brad comes into the picture. Uh, I stopped in for a week at a friend's place in Denver, Colorado. And uh, I was lying on his couch. And there's a phone call that went to a fellow by the name of Eric Warner, also very well known in the, uh, the U.S. brewing industry. He's been around for a while, one of the pioneers. And Brad and Eric had a relationship back then. And uh, there's this call. Hey, do you, uh, Eric, do you know of anybody that's interested in uh, running a malt house in British Columbia? And well, from a Canadian perspective, when you hear about B.C. and you're, you're in the, well, what we call the Midwest of Canada, uh, my eyes lit up, and I certainly had an appreciation for the uh, the European Alps and all that. So I said, "Oh boy, I think things are coming falling into place, falling into place." So there I was. I continued my journey down to LA. Uh, initially, I thought, "Okay, I'm just going to have to backtrack back to the Toronto area." Well, that didn't even happen. Um, I uh, just kept driving straight up the coast. And I ended up in this uh, city called Victoria. My sister was there at the time. And next thing you know it, I was being interviewed by this guy by the name of Brad McQuay. And so he was my first uh, interviewer. Well, it's um, kind of comical in some ways because uh, Rob had tentatively, uh, and you can correct me, Rob, because I don't know if you had accepted the job in bigger Saskatchewan, but... I think that was one of your choices. You had bigger Saskatchewan or you had British Columbia. And yeah. if anybody knows anything about Saskatchewan, it's, it's um, you know, you, you, you need a very good set of binoculars and lots of patience because you can, it takes two days for your dog to want to run away. It's that flat and that far. <laughs> and uh, and I, I knew Rob, uh, if he knew Eric, that meant these guys like hunting, fishing, climbing, stuff like that. And, uh, you know, where this malting plant was going in, it would, you know, it would be a place to die for if you're interested in that sort of stuff. And uh, so uh, I had to paint that sort of picture for Rob because I was originally challenged with this uh, project uh, before I started uh, Newlands up because this was when I had started Newlands uh, in the early 90s. We'd skip forward to uh, Rob's time here is is around 91, 92, something like that. But anyway, Rob, carry on. Yeah. Um, so I I had my first interview with Brad in Victoria. That was my first time on the West Coast. And then uh, then I got, uh, I guess Brad gave me the thumbs up, and then he sent me to this other guy um, who was the marketing uh, manager for a craft brewery here, British colleague called a craft brewery in Vernon, BC, called Okanagan Spring, um, and he gave me my second interview, and I guess he gave me a thumbs up, and then he sent me on to uh, Vernon, BC, where I got to meet the um, the local entrepreneur, also uh, European immigrants. Yeah, and they. That's started... why you got the job because you could speak German. 
<laughs> if they were yelling and swearing at you, you knew what they were saying. So I think that's what they well, like. Well, wait, before it stops, uh, who just cracked a beer? Was that Brad? Uh, sorry, yeah, me. Sounded good. What is it? I'm, I, that's what I got to hear about. Oh, okay. This is, uh, this is from a brewery on Vancouver Island, uh, East Brewing Company. And uh, it's a West Coast IPA, uh, <laughs> appropriately called Jet Fuel. Right on. All right. So, Rob, the, I'm going to jump to something I read about you um, after you got started. So, the, what was the demand for local malt at that time? And I guess to this day, I want to jump ahead. You know, is do is does BC take a lot of pride in its local ingredients? Absolutely, and that I would agree. Uh, that statement is pretty much uh, right through North America. You've got this heightened awareness about. Uh, local products, um, whether it's BC or in your part of the world. Um, at that time, however, uh, I would say, I would describe it as no demand. Um, I'd say vague interest. Um, it was all about, um, in terms of marketing, it was all push. So the the only way you could get people to take your product was really to spend a lot of time, invest invest the time with that potential client, get to understand what they were doing, and then build a relationship from there. Um, if I could use the word, the, 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 the push-pull concept, back then it was push. And then at a certain point in the industry, I, I saw there was a bit more of a switch. It just became a pull. And it uh, you just had to make a product and it, it was automatically... Um, tried or it was um, more accepted what I what I used to do Rob was I used to just recommend uh, people give you a call you know and we would start up a new brewery people would often ask where to, where to where to buy malt and I'd say well you know try give Rob a try because there was also Brees malting around at that time too and, you start uh, Rod you 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 mentioned a, a very important name in the industry and you it was one of the notes I jot, jotted down and it was right at the beginning um, there was a gentleman by the name of Roger Brees, the Brees family running Brees Malting. And uh, every year in Toronto, there is a, uh, a brewing brewing get-together in January. And I attended that one. And I was, in, I was introduced to Roger Brees. And I guess, uh, you know, uh, as a student or someone in their mid-20s, I guess we just chatted. And he looked at me and... Uh, so, so what are you what are you planning on doing, Rob? And uh, I said, well, Roger, I'm believe it or not, there's a, a malt plant uh, opening up in uh, Armstrong, British Columbia. And he looked at me a little bit longer, and he said, "You're crazy." And uh, that, that's malting, and it still continues today. So that was a that was an acute little aside from a, a story way back, and that was even more motivational to uh, to see it through. And uh, yeah, very uh, uh, the the malting industry in North America is very concentrated. Uh, there there really are only a few players. And uh, I guess in my time, uh, what's rather nice to see thirty. I'm going to say if our craft beer revolution is now twenty twenty five years old. After twenty five years, we are now suddenly seeing um, uh, craft malting. And as difficult as it is, we are seeing people, uh, more far, uh, people that are in the agricultural community in uh, different capacities, 
uh, take on an interest and take on that challenge. So uh, we're we're start you're starting to see that more and more um, uh, names that may not be well known, non-traditional names that have that just have just come out of the woodwork. That's great. And let's go to Joe. Let me get Joe in. So Joe, um, you know, this is your area. So tell us a little bit about about British Columbia, the breweries, and what else was might have been going on in the nineties. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean the the BC. Uh, craft beer scene. I mean, back then in the 90s, uh, we didn't even call it craft beer, of course, back then. Nobody really was yet. We were we were just all, it was all microbreweries and micro beer and so on. Uh, but in the 90s, I'd say the highlights would be uh, a bit of a, a boom of new breweries opening in, in Vancouver, which is the biggest city here in BC. Um, continued growth uh, in Victoria and uh, in various other places around BC, uh, spread kind of spreading the gospel of, of, of micro beer. Um, but, uh, it was just this kind of growing awareness and growing, you know, buildup of, of, uh, interest in the, in the community and until things finally kind of reached ahead and exploded probably, you know, about 10 years ago and started to really go, go from there. I just wanted to jump in on, on the, the conversation that, uh, that Rob was talking about with the, the lo- the craft malting and so on, because that's a topic I'd love to touch on if we, if we have time today, because there's lots of, um, Lots of recent growth with farm-based breweries here in BC. We have several now that have opened up in recent years, and I know from talking to a lot of them that the the idea of of growing their own barley and and either malting it themselves or getting getting a monster to to custom malt it for them is a really exciting part of that that um, that idea, and and that consumers really are are keen to taste those beers then too. So yeah, that's a good good segue, Joe. Um, back to Rob. So Rob. What are some malts that are the people are asking for now? Um, you could go, go further with this current craft malting uh, in your area. Well, very good point. And um, I guess there's uh, there are many types of malts that are uh, being asked for by the industry or by the the brewing industry. Um, my recent understanding is that the trend these days is to use. Uh, uh, is going a little bit away from uh, using caramel malts. Uh, I found that kind of interesting, and that's just very, very recent. Uh, we're seeing probably more and more uh, well, well hopped beers, but with a lighter, uh, lighter, less sweet profile. You know, if you could imagine a, a good pilsner, but really well hopped, um, like a west, you know, nice West Coast IPA style. Um, in terms of uh, malts, generally just running through uh, what I call the malt families. You've got your, your on the, the low color spectrum. You've got your uh, pilsner malt, uh, and then you move into your pale malts. Then uh, uh, you might then go into your uh, uh, Vienna malt, uh, light Munichs, Munich malts, and let's say dark Munichs. And then on the caramel on the caramel side, uh, again you've got uh, uh, the, what differentiates the caramel malt from let's say those malts that I just mentioned. Um, is the what we call the starchy endosperm. It's it's basically glassy. It's turned into candy, and that's all of, all related to processing, and whether you're uh, kilning or roasting, and the temperatures that you're using. Um, and those all tend, and they all those malts that I've just mentioned all have a different effect on what you have on your palate, what you taste in the beer on your palate. So not in addition to uh, the brewing method and the uh, the brewing equipment that's that's chosen. You also have that malt, which is the big driver 
of the uh, the palate that you taste, whether it's dry or whether there's a bit of sweetness. And um, the 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 other malts that are on the extreme end, you've got your chocolate malts, you've got your black malts, and you know basically look like coffee, used in very small quantities just to give that nice uh, the hint of um, coffee coffee-like toffee characters. Um, and then there's another real oddball malt, and that kind of falls into, uh, um, I guess, some, something I had some influence over. And, and while uh, while at my time at Gambrinus in the mid '90s, there was a uh, period where he said, "Hey, we got to we got to figure out another type of malt." At that time, we uh, we had the Pilsner, we had pale. Sorry, we didn't build. We had pale. Uh, nobody knew what a Pilsner. Well, some people did, but it just wouldn't have worked at that time. Um, we had wheat malt and uh, uh, some darker malts, Munich malts. And then uh, look, looking at the literature, there was this uh, type of malt um, that uh, in the German literature and uh, Belgian literature is referred to as brew malt. And on my uh, on my sales trips into the San Francisco area, there's a fellow by the name of John Berardino, also a well-known brewer for the... Uh, 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 for the Gordon Beers group at that time. And we would always go on on these nice tangents about uh, malts that were not, not available. And um, he, he, he uh, put the bug, he put the bug in my ear and uh, came back and did some work. And uh, well, according to the literature, um, look, looked into the malt a little bit more and came up with what uh, the North Americans refer to and know as honey malt. I was going to bring that up, Rob. I was going to ask you to comment. Yeah. So that's that's where the name honey came from. Um, and uh, there's a mag- German magazine called Brauvelt, and they put out this little booklet every year, and they talked about raw ingredients, and uh, again, all in German. And one of the uh, uh, descriptions for that particular malt was uh, honey-like, but obviously in German. So I said, I'm not going to call this a brew malt. Nobody's going to, you know, I'm going to get hounded with phone calls and so i said okay let's just call it honey malt and to my chagrin that was in uh, 95 96 and that's when all the americans started coming out with honey malt a uh, honey beer <laughs> so there was so, some confusion yeah, yeah. There was well, I'm, confusion. I'm gonna jump with you. you you guys have a lot to talk about and i'm gonna steer the ship just a little bit um but first we're gonna take a short break and we'll be back in a few minutes on beer sessions radio all right My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I'm able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected. And I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to cheeselandia.com. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Become a member and support us at Heritage Radio Network 
Org. So it's 2021, and we're talking about British Columbia craft beer with uh, Rob Liddle, Brad McQuee, and Joe Weeby. Brad, did I pronounce your name properly? Close. <laughs> Say it again for me. Come on. <laughs> it's McQuay. So what I'm getting to is you're, you're a big story. I mean, honestly, uh, oh, no, you, you're, no, no. You're, a, you're part of the Koenig Brewing Systems, and you, you guys reached out to put the show together. And uh, I'm getting schooled right now on, on British Columbia. I've never been to that that part of the Northwest. Um, you got a long background in, in craft beer. When did you start your your manufacturing business? And then I want, we're going to weigh in on on how important that was to the development of craft beer. And it seems like you had your hands in in making a lot of things happen because you were making the equipment. Yeah. It, it, well, part of it part of it was I I started as a brewer. You know, so I was brewing and you know involved intimately on the beer side of things i was never a manufacturer my background was biochemistry and microbiology not uh, welding and but, but it was in those days though that they're just like i said there was a, a company out of portland that was making equipment and there was a few others but a lot of it looked like it was designed by you know maybe engineers or fabricators or something not not really built by anybody that brew beer and and so that's how I got into it, actually. I got into the fabrication side because I wanted equipment that I would work on. And uh, so that, that's what I got into. And the other part of it was I like, you know, I did a lot of training. In the early days when we sold a system, it always came with uh, training because hardly anybody knew how to, you know, really run a commercial-sized brewery. And so I used to follow breweries out. So we would ship out breweries. And there was one stretch, and this was in the early 90s, uh, and I should back up. This is um, I started Newlands in February uh, 1990, and and Newlands Systems was uh, my company that that uh, built breweries and provided consulting services and did a bunch of things. And but anyway, when we'd ship a brewery out, normally I would follow that brewery and and be involved in the installation. Then it was the training and and uh, and the commissioning of that brew house and and also help them source out, as I said uh, previously the raw materials, whether it was malt. In other words, I would suggest they get a hold of Rob uh, for, for malt and maybe they would buy from him, maybe they wouldn't. But even yeast, so, some, something as simple as yeast was very difficult to get at the time. Uh, there was a couple of companies that started up with white yeast and then white labs and, and then it became a little easier to get uh, yeast. But in the early days, I used to bring uh, what's called a lyophilized ampule from uh, the UK, from a place called uh, NCYC which is the National Collection of Yeast Cultures. And I would aseptically break that open and there's maybe a gram of a, a freeze-dried yeast in there. And then I would culture that up in, a, in my little lab and, to pitching quantities. And uh, that's, that's really how we got our <laughs> yeast. <laughs> and today you just open up a catalog and you order it. You just tell them how much and they send it to you. But, you, you know, we couldn't do it back in those days. Yeah. Well, you, got, you guys are our pioneers and I think that's important to, to, to keep go, going through these stories. So you opened up Newland and how many breweries were you working for building systems the first few years? And what was it? Was there a typical size or was everything custom? Yeah, it wasn't so custom, and the reason why it wasn't so custom back in those days is because people weren't knowledgeable. They, you know, they basically um, each of each of the manufacturers because they be, the number of manufacturers really grew throughout the nineties. In in nineteen ninety, let's say there might have been three, and by ninety two there was six. By 
1994, uh, there, there might have been two dozen uh, companies that were all saying they build brewing equipment. And, uh, you know, each one had their own kind of design on it. But the dollar figures were small. People didn't have big budgets in those days, uh, or most people didn't. You know, the odd one would have a big budget, but most of those budgets were pretty small. And I'm talking, you know, a brewing system in the neighborhood of, say, 150 to 200,000 all in all inclusive you know and it was that was kind of the norm back in those days but we would do uh you know in the it, everything accelerated uh in the early 90s from 91 to 95 95 we were uh pushing out about four brew houses a month so four breweries a month is what we were delivering in 95 and uh, so i mean there was a lot of these you know there was a big growth back in those days and uh you know, and, and I was actively involved, not just in manufacturing, but in the brewing industry as well. Like I actually behind me, we're not on video, but behind me, I've got a, a poster, a small poster that I've got framed. And it was from uh, 1993 Great American Beer Festival. And, and uh, all the judges for that event signed this poster. And I'm one of the judges. And so the, so the, the first time I judged for the Great American Beer Festival, which is in Denver, was in 92. And so I, I've been actively involved on the beer side of this industry, not just the equipment side, for a long, long time. And, uh, and it's been a lot of fun. It's been a real fun. But it was the tail so end Brad, of the 90s for when you. things started to taper off. And, and uh, Joe, when, when did you get, uh, start getting involved, uh, you know, start getting interested in the brewing industry? Well, it was the 90s um, when I started, you know, really checking it out and, and visiting breweries and, and talking to people. But I didn't really start writing about it actively until, you know, maybe like closer to 2006 or seven, somewhere around there kind of thing. Um, but I, I had a question for you, Brad, about like we have so many equipment manufacturers right here in B.C. now. Um, you know, we've got you guys and I think there's specific mechanical here and on the island and there's a few more. There's at least two more that I can think of. Right. How many are there here in B.C.? There's a when uh, when DME went under, um, it spun off uh, a, a number of ex-employees and that sort of thing. So, so there's a another group locally here uh, and they're doing small scale stuff, um, you know, because it's not that hard to to build simple um, you know, the, the smaller equipment. So when you get into the bigger stuff, then you really need to be in the engineering side. And uh, so that has never bothered me. Competition has never been a concern of mine, whether it's in the, on the beer side or whether it's on the equipment side. I just focus on my job and what I'm doing and how do I get better and how do I improve and uh, not worry about what other people are doing. I mean, it's, it's like driving a race and looking in your rearview mirror all the time. You should be looking down the road to try to win the race. And uh, so that's kind of my approach to it. I've just always thought it was interesting that we had these, uh, you know, the, the kind of the conjunction of, of having these equipment manufacturers here in BC and the, the industry growing along with them. I mean, you describe how you provided services, like consulting services as well, and helped helped basically train a lot of these early brewers when they were opening their businesses. And and I think that's a big reason for the success of the industry here in BC. Well, you even know, when you talk about in North America, yeah. though, I used to take yeast with me. I used to pack it on a plane and I used to get in trouble with customs because they want to put their fingers in it and all that sort of thing. You know, because think about it, you're getting on a plane and you got this container and it's got gooey stuff in there and they have no idea what it is. You're trying to explain it's <laughs> yeast slurry. It's not beer. It's not alcohol. <laughs> and, uh, no, honest, it's not going to blow up, you know. 
know. <laughs> and prior to 9-11, you could do that. But after that, of course, that, everything changed. But, um, you know, it, I trained, oh, probably over a thousand uh, brewers uh, over the years. Because a lot of times it was more than one person when I'm dealing with. Sometimes it was three or four people that you're working with. And what I mean training is training them on the equipment. I'm not there for months on end to, to, to fully train these people out. I'm showing them, you know, the basics of brewing and, and that sort of thing. And, and you know, the, the rest of it, they would pick up as time. Hey, let's talk about it. Let me uh, jump in about innovation. So in the time that you, from the time that you started Brad and Rob, so for Brad, for you, let's go to, to brewery systems uh, and Rob, for you, malting or malting systems. What was the biggest change that happened, not just the scale, but was there a specific technolo- technological change or, or something that, that really marks the difference between, let's say, now and the 90s? Well, um, there's a number of things. Um, let, me, let me deal with just the, the early 90s, um, the technolo- te- technological differences. And, and I'm comparing uh, what we did with others more than anything else. Uh, most of the systems were fairly simple, and, and Rob can attest to this, but most of them were also direct fired. Direct fired means they had a, a flame underneath a pot. In other words, your brew kettle was flame fired. And from the very beginning, I never liked it. I, I always went with steam. And uh, we, we tried, we dabbled a little bit in direct fired, but never liked them. And they were never very efficient and things like that. And so we, we standardized on steam fired systems and have always done that. And so that doesn't equate to your question about innovation of today. Today, innovation is um, in all but, aspects. But Brad, that actually was that was a huge uh, moment. Thank you. Oh, okay. Uh, we don't have enough time to get into all those moments. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy, <laughs> we have more time than you think. <laughs> no, we'd have to, we'll have to we'll have direct to fire to steam, and then yeah, direct fire to steam. But you fast forward how technology or how automation and everything else changes with time. Like uh, PLCs and things like that were expensive, and and really the domain of uh, larger enterprises and things like that. You know, so uh, small scale was a little unusual. It wasn't uh, absolutely unique, but you just didn't see a lot of that. Today, um, even simple systems will have a PLC running it. And, uh, and and some will say their system is automated. and It means they have a PLC. It doesn't really do anything. It just gives them some readouts on temperature and flow and stuff like that. It may not control the process at all. But you can find very small systems, and we built them, where it is automatic. I mean, you, you can actually run it from your iPhone or iPad or your desktop even if you want. Um, and that's the difference. Uh, but the difference also is the dollar value. You know, like uh, we've done little tiny systems that are 800 to almost a million bucks. And uh, that was unheard of back in the 90s. I mean, just no one would spend that kind of money. And uh, nowadays, that is not an unusual number. You know, uh, when someone says, okay, my budget is, you know, 1.3 million for the brewing system. And you're going, yeah, that's reasonable. Yeah, it's very different. And then, Rob, for you, let's pick one moment uh, in your career where something major changed, the technology or some other aspect. You know, as Brad was speaking there, I, I was trying to think of a moment or let's call it what's happened in the last 30 years. Um, malting is a very traditional industry and thing, uh, the adoption of new techniques, 
is um, very slow. And it really, you go through most of the malt plants uh, anywhere in the world. They, you will, rec if you did that, you'd recognize, my God, they all look the same. They all look roughly the same, only it's the scale. But if there's one overriding uh, piece of technology, or I'm going to use the word understanding um, that we have today that we didn't have 30 years ago, is the importance of, and in a nutshell, malting is a, um, it's a growth process. You actually are taking barley, a heart that harvested from, from uh, that's being harvested by farmers. You're steeping it, germinating it, and killing it. So it's a biological process. And one thing that we understand now more than we did 30 years ago, and this, this is all work that's come through the, the brewing, um, the brewing research is the importance of uh, what we, the role of oxygen in, um, in the steeping and grow and growing of our germination of barley. And what that, what that really means, like 30 years ago, it wouldn't be unheard of that someone just takes barley and steeps it because a steeps, they put it in water and it absorbs water. It absorbs the water. You come to a certain moisture content, but uh, once it's at that magical point where it starts to germinate, well, it may have suffered through a lot. Like it, um, some people may, may not have even, uh, you know, provided an air rest. These are all technical terms. It's about keeping that, that seed alive, never letting it feel like it's drowning. And believe it or not, that simple concept uh, has spilled over and influenced um, beer production in, uh, in the U.S., Canada, around the world. And we're, uh, the brewing industry and the malting industry is a better place for that. So well, there, the other it, thing, though, too, Rob, is back in you know, the early days, we could measure oxygen in parts per million, right? Mm -hmm. And what are we measuring today? PBBs. Yes, parts per billion. So, and, you know, I'm waiting for the parts per trillion to come out next, but who knows? Well, if you're in the states, they're, they're giving out trillion dollar stimulus now. So <laughs> we we never really heard about trillions before. Yeah, but, it's becoming common. <laughs> and I just wanted to add, there just really hasn't been a magic bullet in the malting industry. It still involves a lot of work, uh, a lot of hard work. It's uh, uh, what I call it's the black box of the brewing industry. It's very it's unknown. There's really only a handful of people that really know what's going on inside it. And uh, they're all employed, and they're usually they're at one of the malt plants. And uh, it, it's um, yeah, it, it's it's such a it's a unique animal, and I don't know how else to describe you it. You know, I'm definitely going to have you guys back on again because Rob, uh, I've always heard about Western Canada malt, and we're going to talk more about it. But let's get to Joe. So Joe, um, let's tell us about your book and about the BCL Trail, and kind of bring us up to speed on. You know, when when COVID's over, you know, where should I be drinking in in uh, British Columbia? Right where Joe is in Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much right, Brad. Uh, well, yeah, my book uh, Craft Beer Revolution came out in um, the first edition was 2013 uh, when we had 50 breweries in BC. I did a second edition a couple of years later when there were 90 breweries, and then I basically gave up trying to update the book because <laughs> we were opening. 20, 25 breweries a year. It was kind of impossible, but I helped start this other uh, project called the BC Ale Trail, and that is a website, bcaletrail.ca, that um, 
you know, provides all the info you need to, to explore the craft beer community here in BC from afar and to plan a, plan a trip, plan a visit. We, you know, I think Brad will agree with me when I say that I think we've had a world-class beer, beer community here for a long time. It's just that people didn't necessarily know about it. And, uh, we've been, we've been trying to spread the, spread the word and to get the, get the news out there and bring people, bring influencers and writers in here to, to, to taste the beer and to see how good it is. And to, you know, the, the, the great thing about BC is that it's just, it's basically the, the best place in Canada for so many reasons from a, you know, touristic standpoint, you know, we have amazing landscape access to ocean and, and skiing and, and all kinds of different uh, climates that you can experience all in one place. And, um, you know, most people, a lot of people move to BC because they, you know, from elsewhere in Canada, because it simply is the best, best part of Canada, bar none. So you get that and then you have amazing beer in combination. So yeah, here in Victoria, we consider it, um, you know, I consider it kind of the cradle of the craft beer revolution. Spinnakers, as we've talked about at the start of the interview today was, was the first brew pub in Canada back in 1984. uh, And it's still going strong today. Um, along with Spinnakers, there's another uh, 12 to 15 other breweries of various shapes and sizes, uh, all kinds of different types of beer being produced here and, um, you know, great different approaches, tap rooms and brew pubs and, and production sized breweries and so on. So hey, Joe, it's uh, is, I, yeah, sure. Is Swans still open there? Yeah, Swans Brew Pub op- is still going strong as well. And they opened, they opened back in 1989. So that's, that's kind of another very early early historic brew pub to check out while you're here too. So it was Paul and Sean Hoyne and I, and I think Sean's got his own brewery now, right? Yeah. Sean Hoyne uh, ended up moving on to another brew pub nearby called Canoe that's still going strong. Yep. And then he opened Hoyne Brewing, which is his own, um, his own, uh, 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 own spot about 10 years ago now. So yeah. Um, you know, we've got a, lots of different places to visit here in BC. Victoria, of course, is my favorite, but uh, as a, you know, since I live here, but I'd also highly recommend Vancouver. They've got a really dynamic, uh, creative scene over there with t- more than 25 breweries spread all around the city. Lots of different things going on. Uh, just fantastic beers to taste there as well. And um, I mean, just everywhere you go, everywhere you look in BC, it's just been spreading all over the province. We have more than 200 breweries here now. So Now, now Joe, what you need to do is rub the weather in the right about now. Like it's probably sunny and yeah. what's the temperature there? It is. It's sunny. It's a little, it's little on the cool side for Victoria. It's only about five or six degrees Celsius. Sorry. What's Fahrenheit for that? Jeez. Uh, that's, it's, uh, 40, 42, 44, something like that. Yeah. So it's not, it's not, you know, but, but it doesn't get much colder than this, uh, here in Victoria. And, uh, certainly, you know, just a couple of days ago, I was out on my bike and I was, I was wearing my long pants, but I was thinking, oh, I should just be wearing shorts. I'm too hot. So that'll tell you something mid January. And Joe, you're, you're known, <laughs> you're known on Instagram as at thirsty writer, and I'm going to keep following you. Um, de- yeah, definitely sure. got a lot going on. So Brad, um, just to bring our listeners up to speed, some know about you, some know that you, you, at some point you sold your, your Newland systems and um, that business ended up closing after you sold it and you've come back. So what what's it like coming back? You know, the, I'm sure the industry welcomed you. You've been such a hero for so many years. Well, you know, when I, when I sold it, uh, Jimmy, you know, when I, sold, when I sold the business, I was thinking that the business had grown really too big for me. You know, like I, I view myself as a hands-on type guy. And so when you have 
multiple locations and hundreds of employees and that sort of thing. It was, it was getting a little big. Um, and I probably didn't believe in myself to run it. And, uh, so I thought, well, you know, here's an opportunity to, um, continue the business by, by selling it and providing opportunity for those that worked for me. And unfortunately it just did not work out that way. And, and so during that time frame, it was about a two year, uh, sabbatical, you might say I took from the industry and, uh, that's when I realized, uh, I, I missed the manufacturing side. I missed um, doing the startups uh, because even though I was the owner of the business, I still would do um, probably a half a dozen startups a year. So I would go out and show up at the tail end of an install and, and work with the installation team to finish that off and then do the commissioning and then do the training. I, I, uh, I still like doing that. And I'm not a kid. I'm, I'm uh, 64 now. And... Uh, but I, I try to stay in shape and try to keep up with the younger guys. And, uh, and we are in the beer industry, so that's also a, <laughs> sometimes a difficult challenge too. But I've, I've managed to uh, uh, stay fit enough uh, anyway. But um, so I, after uh, DME or the, uh, the venture capital group that actually bought the business, I mean, they, uh, uh, they failed. And uh, I, I was still the owner of the manufacturing facility. Like I didn't sell that. And so uh, I talked to a few employees and, and uh, a few other people at the end. They were all wondering what to do. And I just felt kind of sorry for them all because I let them all down. You know, I sold the business thinking that it was going to grow and continue and provide opportunities. And here they're unemployed. So uh, starting it up was a no-brainer. It really uh, something... Uh, I've been doing for 30 years, so it's it's uh, it's like going to the bank and they're saying, well, this is a new business. And I'm going, it's not a new business. <laughs> it's a business I know real well. And and they back me. I mean, the, the banks are no problem. They're, they're on our side. And then the employees that uh, we hired at the beginning here were all ex-Newlands employees. They were all experienced people. The engineering group I've got here is... Uh, I think the the newest guys probably got you know five or six years doing the breweries, but uh, uh, all of them worked for me before. So, so I, I just saw on your Instagram, so at Koenig Brewing Systems, um, it's the latest post it says big tanks. Now those two big white tanks, uh, how, how big are those? Uh, I think those are four hundred. Uh, I think I'll measure that in metric. So I'll, I'll call those four hundred hectoliter, four hundred hectoliter tanks. Which is about uh, 360 barrel, something like that. So those are big tanks. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, not, so much has changed. We bigger. <laughs> I'm not going to cut you off, but I, I, let's just wrap it up. So, you okay. know, we're in COVID. A lot of things have changed. Um, a lot of people have pivoted. If each of you can just say one thing about your your, your area of, of expertise, what you can predict and maybe in a positive predictions for 2021 and beyond. Um, let's take Joe first. Sure. Thanks. Um, yeah, I've been following and checking in with with breweries all over the province all throughout the, uh, the the COVID times because you know I've been really worried that some of them would 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 end up having to shut their businesses down and and so it's been really really um, gratifying in a lot of ways to see them pivot and to see them respond. Uh, of course, a lot of them have had to lay off some of their 
some of their workforce, but they're all hoping to come back stronger. And the message I keep hearing repeated is that it's giving them an opportunity to to assess their business model and to to recognize uh, parts of their business that maybe they weren't doing as well as they could. And whether that's packaging, a lot of breweries weren't bothering to package or were doing it on a very limited basis because they were relying solely on their tasting rooms. Um, so now those breweries have recognized the importance of of balancing their business model so that they have, you know, uh, they can rely on their tasting rooms for part of it, but that they also have a packaging model in place and then a distribution point. Um, as a consumer, I've been really happy to see a lot of breweries add shipping through Canada Post or couriers to their through their distribution models because just the way the BC is kind of set up, if you live here, like in Victoria, you're on an island that's separate from the mainland. And it means that a lot of the smaller breweries don't bother to distribute their beer here because of additional costs of getting it over here on the ferries and so on. So if I want to taste beer from a really cool brewery that doesn't normally distribute here and I'm landlocked here on the island because of COVID, I'm kind of hooped. But, you know, luckily some of them are starting to, to ship through through Canada Post, as I mentioned, and so on. And it gives me the opportunity to occasionally put it on order for something special. So, that's great. Yeah, so I think that's what I'm most excited about is just to see them all as they come out of COVID, to see them all adjust their models and really fine-tune what they're doing so that they can really do the, the best they can. And great. And Rob, for you, uh, World of Malt in 2021? Well, I know that uh, the malting industry as a whole has taken a hit, Um i.e. whatever whatever happened to beer consumption has a very direct effect on uh, um, the the amount of barley being used and i.e. the amount of barley being processed into malted uh, malted product and uh, I think we're in a phase now where as as uh, as people sort sort through um, let's call it chaos um, there will be uh, more beer consumed and uh, I would say uh, predominantly draft. I think that's what's had the biggest influence. The drop in draft uh, consumption has had the biggest influence on beer volume, therefore the effect on malt uh, being sold. But I have a feeling uh, that's all going to change. And uh, if, if history is anything, uh, history is something to look at and, and learn from. I understand there was a uh, pandemic 100 years ago it was just after the first world war also really bad spanish flu and uh uh people got well the, our societies got through that and then all of a sudden there was a thing called the roaring 20s <laughs> you're like me rob i'm i'm positive and an optimist and, and i'm right there with you and brad let's close it out and again if uh tell me your beers i know you had the ace rob and joe before we go just just quickly mention any beer that you're drinking but brad uh, uh, blue buck blue buck I'm drinking Blue Buck because it's uh, one of the only vertically integrated uh, breweries in North America. It's a craft brewery uh, located right in uh, Joe's neighborhood. They built a malt plant. Not only do they make beer, they make malt. And there's only one other one in Western Canada, just outside of Calgary, called Origin. I have to put a plug in for them. All right, Blue Buck. Joe, what are you drinking? I, I found... Well, I'm not drinking anything right at the moment, actually, because I was in the middle of my work day. But uh, uh, let me think. What do I want to have? Uh, there's a great local brewery called Category 12 that I'm a big fan of. And they've got a really nice Imperial Hazy IPA called High Frequency that I've been uh, enjoying a lot lately. So that's what I'll reach for later, for sure. That's great. So, Brad, let's let's close it out. So right. uh, it's your show. You're, you're the man. And I appreciate you guys coming on. Well, everything looks um, rosy. Let's put it that way. 
even though we, you know, the COVID is not over yet, um, you know, vaccine is slowly making its way out to the population. People are anticipating the end. Um, wrong or rightly, I, you know, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but um, we've become accustomed to, uh, you know, the, the situation we're in right now, and we're seeing expansion. We're seeing, you know, orders being placed on a regular basis. We're busy. We're, we're looking at adding a second shift here, and uh, that was not something that was happening a year ago. Um, so uh, that's a telltale sign right there for every, everybody, you know, that guess what? People are believing that um, there is a need to add more equipment to make more beer. So I think uh, people are anticipating a very good summer. Well, you guys just picked me up. That's, that's what I think too. So thank you guys so much. I'm sure we'll get to talk again. Joe, I think you're going to need to do a, a long form book with Brad and get all of his, uh, particularly interesting moments from his career. Um, Agreed. Yeah, I'll just let him, I'll just let him talk and I'll type it. It's, I mean, he's just a great storyteller. Yeah, we can keep going. So <laughs> thank oh, you yeah. so much. Uh, big thanks, uh, Rob, Brad, and Joe for joining me on Heritage Radio Network. Big thanks to our engineer, Armin, and intern, Caroline Fox. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right, guys. Woo! Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simicast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.